This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Adrian, and with me as always is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Jake. Jake, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to be doing this episode. Forgive me in advance for having the nasaliest voice since literally somebody who had a nose for a head. I am infirmed with a mutated virus that I contracted from my gross baby that coughed into my mouth <laughs> a thousand times. He got pissy when he was sick, and so he like wouldn't sleep unless he was on someone's chest. And so I was like, all right, I'll take one for the team. I'll be a good guy. And he like breathed into me. You know when uh, the Imhotep sucks someone's soul out? It was the reverse. Instead of sucking my soul out, he spit in a contaminated soul of a virus from, uh, what was uh, Osmosis Jones, and I'm dying. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. So I reach out to my co-host and I'm like, hey, I am sick and dying. And Adrian's like, well, then you should record three times this week. No, I did not. No, I said that we should reschedule. I even said, let's reschedule. And then Jake sends a pissy little text message saying, oh, you guys just need to tell me what you want to do so I can coordinate. Pissy. Who is the one who always says, "I"? well, I don't know if it was pissy, but in the context, it sounded pissy. I, I was waiting for my per my last email preface. And I'm like, who always asks you guys when you want to record? Who always tries to coordinate? Who sends out the calendar invites that nobody ever looks at? Me. Except for when you don't and then things get messed up. But I actually, (laughs) I even said, I'm flexible, period. I would really like you guys to come to a decision so I could plan, period. Thank you, exclamation point. That was my message. So tell me in the comments if I'm passive aggressive after I said that I was willing to record And I quote, with whoever, whenever, because Doug is making a career for himself in Hollyweird right now. Well, exactly. And so, yeah, I think because, you know, Doug's like, we have to make sure that we we work around Doug, which is not a problem. But I did tell you when things were going to or when I could do it and and when, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there. You know, I could tell you don't have a thick skin because I couldn't make a flippant comment without you being like, um, exhibit A. Through the die, Jake. I was just being an asshole. I forget nothing. <laughs> it's okay. No, it's okay. We figured it out. So yes, like you're recording three times. Well, you're not recording three times. You're recording twice. And then we have our watch party Saturday. Which is being recorded. So that's the third time. Oh, is it being recorded? Yeah, we've recorded all of them. We did? Yeah, but then no. the, the flash drive got broken on the first one. Oh, and then okay. I still haven't uploaded the other one because it was okay. awkward. But anyway, what movie are we talking about? I, I made you intro this shit because this was your movie. Okay, yeah, I'm really excited because I chose Slither for this month. And what is this month, Jake? You didn't tell us. 2001, A Space Augusty. Thanks to our friend Alan for the delightful name that beat my names that I came up with. I know. It's so cute. We love it. So I'm really excited about this month and all of the fun content that's coming your way, especially with Slither, which is my my beautiful background here. Isn't it just luscious? Don't you just love looking at it? Well, I mean, if you're watching this video, sorry, guys, for the ones listening. Oops. I realized I hadn't seen this movie. I thought I had seen this movie and I I must have just seen enough production stills and clips and stuff to have thought that I saw it. Not that there's any like spoilers or like or, or plot twists or anything where I like missed the story. I just realized there was so much stuff that like either I had seen it and it's completely lost, which is possible considering it's almost 15 years old. No, it's 15 years old. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty. It's 2006. Yeah. March 31st, 2006, if you want to be hyper technical about it. When was the last time you saw this film? Well, I watched it last week, actually. When I saw that it was on Tubi, I got excited. So so separate and apart from recording an episode, you were like, fuck yeah, I'm going to watch this. Yeah, no, I really like this movie. But I think the last time I saw it before this was, I don't know, in college. We were just, someone just put it on and we were just watching it. Because I think I went to the theaters to see it. And I don't remember much of it, I think, because everybody was like, you know, no one was paying attention. It was like a midnight showing craziness going on. So then I watched it again and I was like, this is actually really good. And then when I watched it again last week, I saw all of the little tidbits that I never would have noticed had I not done Trow March with you guys. Right. Thank you little for Jamie introducing Gunn. me to that. Well, yes. A little cameo by Lloyd Kaufman as, I quote, know. sad, drunk, end quote. <laughs> and then what's her name is watching, what is it? Toxic, uh, Toxic Avenger. Toxic Avenger on the TV. I was like, oh my gosh. Melvin Ferd. Go back and listen to my goddamn interview with Mark Torgel. He's a delight. I love him. Now, we haven't really touched on the whole... We used to do the competition a lot. I really like looking at a movie's contemporaries when it comes out. Yeah. This year was a bastard of movies. You had stuff like Larry the Cable Guy, Health Inspector, came out that month. (laughs) Basic Instinct 2 came out that month. (laughs) She's the Man came out. But then I was also probably more enamored with V for Vendetta, which is a much better movie than a comic book. Quote me on it. Mm. Have you read the comic? No. There's a whole scene, a subterranean scene where V positions a bunch of dolls to scare a bad man. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I've, I was never a fan of that movie. I didn't, I, uh, whatever. Oh, there's also Scary Movie 4 came out the next month. So, I mean, lots going on. And I guess the Hills Have Eyes remake and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, that that particular month, pretty much nothing came out. But I was looking, I was thinking, so the only other horror that month that I would put it up next to would be the Hills Have Eyes. And so I wrote in my notes somewhere because I was comparing them and I had a good point and I forgot what I wrote. <laughs> but I actually think that this is for 2006. Hostel also came out that year, right? January, yeah. And I always think of 2000 because that's the year I graduated. So that was the year that I was just, you know, like really getting into horror movies and trying to go see as many as possible. And The Hills Have Eyes really like, like cemented for me, like how much I adore horror movies. And I bought the DVD and I love the fact that Wes Craven does an entire commentary for the whole movie. So if you guys didn't know about, well, I see you by the Blu-ray now or whatever, but I don't know. I wrote something. Well, in, in terms of horror, the the real classic, see no evil with Kane, WWF's Kane, who's now a mayor of a fucking town. He that came out in Feb or in May. Okay. Also, I will stand by it. See no evil and see no evil two are actually like fairly competent horror films. I actually quite enjoy them. But this year I was looking at it, a lot of retreads. You know, you had the Hills Have Eyes remake. You had the Omen remake. Mm. And so a lot of it's just like this weird, like, you know, re-trudging up of all of this shit. So it's interesting to me when I was reading about this film, so many people were like the Wicker Man, all this shit. So many people were like, oh, James Gunch is ripping off this. and He's ripping off that. And he's ripping. And I'm like, yeah, bitch. It's called homage Mm -hmm. i did was it distracting for you for this film with how many references there were or was it like a celebration no i thought it was definitely a celebration because like when i noticed i didn't notice it back then because i didn't really watch traumas and watching it now for me was so much more just exciting like i was super excited that i knew like I, i knew the references to a lot of these things and then not only that i feel that 
I feel like for a body horror flick, it's so like good. Like it's got really good character development. And I mean, a lot of the practical effect, all the practical effects are really great. I mean, the CGI is a little so-so, but it's early 2000s, whatever. But as far as like just the, the, the ickiness and just, just all of the different prosthetics and all the things they put on the people. And did you know that a lot of their practical effects were made out of the same material that they make sex toys out of? Did you read that? Well, makes sense. Yeah. I'll say that. What were you talking about? Silicone or what? Yeah. Like uh, I was reading an article by this chick who actually wrote, let me see, Heather Wixon. I don't know if you uh-huh. know who I'm talking about because she actually wrote um, an article in celebration of the Monster Squad. So I thought you'd appreciate that. And she was talking about Todd Master's special effects. And she was saying, uh, he was talking about how he had to do, he had to pitch like this little mini film with voiceovers and um, that James Gunn actually did just to get like people to, to get the movie going. And basically they had all of these sex toys, like they were bringing people through the studio and they had all of these sex toys laying on the table. And he was like trying to be professional, but at the same time, like people were taking these things apart and using them to make little slugs and stuff. So I thought that was fun. Yeah. I'm actually looking at her now. She likes poltergeist, which makes a lot of sense. Pan's labyrinth again, makes a lot of sense. The fly makes a lot of sense, but silicone's a great, great tool to use. Foam gets fucked up. Foam dies very quickly and it, it creases very differently and stuff. Silicone's more expensive. It's a lot heavier. Uh, it has some temperament to it, but I really love silicone effects. And so it, uh, that's something that's pretty clear in this film. It just has a, a viscosity to it that's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. It's just there's something very like nasty and just it's it's so refreshing to have a film with these kinds of effects because it would have been so easy to just make all of the CGI. I feel like, yeah. you know, just to kind of just get it together. Right. And I think that's why I didn't see this in theaters. Truly, we've, we've talked about it quite a bit that I was a bit of a snob throughout the the 2000 aughts, you know, where I was like, I don't care to see this. I, I don't want to see the same. Like I, I didn't see Drag Me to Hell until I did it for the show. A lot of wait, not Drag Me to Hell, whatever. A bunch of shit I haven't seen from that time period because it's just, you know, it tacky. Oh, it's a scary old lady. Oh, her eyes are now black because they use a computer. And a lot of it was so derivative. Like I, I continued looking through this year. And even if it wasn't a sequel or excuse me, even if it wasn't a, a retread or remake, a reboot, you still had shit like The Grudge 2, Saw 3, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, mm-hmm. they had the Black Christmas remake. So like this whole time frame was just such a bastardization. And I just I, there's so much of this shit I didn't like. And I remember the trailer. And I went back and I watched the trailer for this. And I was like, yep, I thought this was just going to be CGI slugfest. Mm-hmm. And I was so wrong, which it's so frustrating to me because I'm so used to the way trailers are now where they show everything that like if I would have seen the good practical stuff, I definitely would have gone out of my way to see this movie as a kid. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's a shame. And the thing is, is like, I feel like if they had shown any of the practical things in the trailer, then it would kind of ruin it. Right. Because you yeah. you just think it, you think at the beginning, it's just the slugs. Like you don't think it's it's this whole entity that's controlling. Like it's actually really yeah. smart if you think about it. I, I, well, not smart, but I mean, it, it's a very smart kind of monster, which we've seen before and and you know the body snatchers and other things like that too but i mean 
Well, I mean, no one can see what I'm talking about, but you know, Michael Rooker, what he turns into at the end reminds you of society. It reminds you of all of these yep. great body horror films that are so Born fucking and good. And yeah. And so I, that's a shame. It's a shame. It's good that they don't give it away, but it's a shame that, you know, people probably would have turned off this movie for that reason. And that kind of sucks because they're missing out. Well, and they do it really well because what they do is they blend the two together. I am always a fan even if I could see the seam where I see the VFX versus the practical effects, if you're using VFX to enhance practical effects, like to take a puppeteer out or to do stuff like that, I'm always so eager to see that because it's not a cop out because it still costs a lot. It still is a lot of work. You know, I I we ha- I did a bunch of research for Mars Attacks. We'll get into that. I know on next week's episode, but it's so frustrating to me because the practical effect ended up costing so much more than digital, even in 96. I think a lot of people think that, oh, in the infancy of CGI, it was so expensive. Not really. Mm -hmm. It was way more expensive to do the practical and have the tangible. And there's something to that. Like even look at stupid shit like the hateful eight, like Quentin Tarantino made the set like 30 degrees, which is stupid. You could easily do breath, but you appreciate it so much more when it's real breath. Mm-hmm. You know, that uncanny valley. And this is so awesome. Like when they're melding with this flesh pile at the end and that fusion is so good because it's so like, you know, you, you know, that's a person and you know, that's a giant silicone slug. And then all the VFX artist is doing is blending the two. And it's so cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, obviously to enhance something, I think it, it's definitely <sighs> helpful. But as far as as practical effects, and I always say this, and I will continue to say this until I die, is that they always stand the test of time. So, you know, someone watching this, like, for example, this is 15 years old. Everything still holds up well. Things from Evil Dead pretty much still hold up well. I mean, some of the puppetry is a little crazy. But for the most part, we look at The Exorcist. It's still one of the scariest films of all time. The best practical effects, the best shit with the girl and doing all that stuff with her. And Great example of the dumb breath thing. Like they froze people alive so that they could have fake breath. Shitty effects. Shitty effects. I would love to do an entire episode on shitty effects because especially computer shitty effects can take me out of stuff. Like when they did the the remake of the Nightmare on Elm Street where it's the wall thing. Mm -hmm. Why would you remake the most iconic practical effect that cost $5 with this stupid computer yeah you pricks so if you want us to do an episode on how much we hate cg when done poorly let me know i would also antithetically like to do an episode where i think that some great cg is oh, yeah. so that could be a whole half a month of content no i agree because you're absolutely right like when it's something is super shitty and i was just watching something the other day thinking oh my god this is so bad i just spilled my grapefruit soda on my tits you missed <laughs> it because you were looking away trying to find a word You better leave that in. I'm going to listen back to the episode. I'm, I'm, I'm hear, going like, to leave that in. I Just like I mentioned the, uh, the flatulence last week. I was going to take it out. Oh, God. And I was like, I can't take it out. It's too funny. <laughs> Listening to it back, it clearly was a drill. Because for yeah, those of you who don't know, know Doug's getting his house worked on. But we certainly love terrorizing him. He's like, no, it's not. It's not my anus. Yeah, I know. Doug did not. For the record, everyone, Doug did not fart. We were just giving him a hard time. So there's that. But yeah, so no, I think that would be a great idea to, to do an episode episode like that because there's a lot of and i always say this it's like the early 2000s really that just has a lot of that shitty cgi for some reason and and i probably could look it up and find the answer i am assuming it's because it's starting to get better oh the cube the cube has the worst 
CGI ever. And like, mm. I remember watching it back in the day thinking it was so good. And then I rewatched it recently and I had to turn it off. I'm like, this fucking sucks. Like, I can't believe how bad this is. It's a good premise, but just bad CGI, I guess. I don't know. No, I completely agree. And there's there's tons of instances where that happens where you just like it, you lose it. Mm-hmm. And like, that's one of the things that we've talked about on this show. Like one of the reasons this show came to be is like, I can't divide my attention when I watch horror. And that's one of the reasons I like horror is I will sit there. I'll put my fucking phone down. I will ignore my wife and children and I will just be in this moment, you know, and making an excuse to do this day in, day out was so important to me. And like, if you lose that like vivacity of it, it's just, it almost feels like something's being taken from you. Am I being over dramatic or do you feel like that when you see like a shitty, like in the movie Mimic, Mimic is so fucking good. And then there's a terrible bug that's like, God damn it. You couldn't have done a puppet, you son of a bitch. Yeah, I know. And that's, it's, I feel the same way because, and oh, for example, and we'll just take, you know, trip back down memory lane. And I can't remember what year Freddy versus Jason came out, but remember, I don't know if you remember. Pot smoking slug. Is that what you're talking about? That's what I was talking about. And I, you know, we were so fucking excited, so excited to the point to where I had to call my mom because they wouldn't let us in. And I don't remember, I must have been like 14. They wouldn't let us into the movie theater. So I had to call my mom to come walk us in. And then she left because she wasn't going to stay for that. And the slug comes on, or and then the, even the droplets of blood from the ceiling. And I watched a lot of behind the scenes stuff about that. And it was just more feasible to do that with CGI, or at least that's what they were trying to, to convince yeah. a very young Adrian at the time who just believes everything she hears. So, you know, whatever. It's just, you're so excited for this fucking movie. And like uh, the, the dream sequence when Jason's walking through the moat and there's like this big construct with all of these faces in it and all the time it took to make and build this thing. And it's literally in there for two seconds. We couldn't figure out a way to bring this beautiful piece that was built for the movie in longer and got rid of the little pot smoking. Like, like, did he need to be there? No, it was funny, I guess. Like I watch it now. It's funny, but (laughs) on the topic of aliens and space bullshit, it shows like the movie alien is so fucking good. Like I, to this day, that episode is still one of my favorites we've ever done because I, I just love that movie so much. And what's so crazy to me is a set piece that's basically thrown away with the stargazer and the eggs. You could do all, if you did a whole movie with just that set, you'd be like, dude, that's a fucking dope movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just a breeze through, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's Dorothy, just the first fucking kilometer of the golden road. And then she just moves on. And it, it's so crazy to me that you see stuff like that. It, that's another thing that pisses me off when you see a terrible movie, but you see something really cool and you're like, why just do the one thing the mm-hmm. one thing was good yeah but maybe i'm just old and cranky because i feel like 80 percent <laughs> of the movies i watch and shit now i'm like just simplify just it's just too much if it's over 85 minutes then jake's not watching <laughs> okay here's here's some real talk though so last month we did the extended cut of super mario brothers yes. right mm-hmm. i loved that extended cut two hours and five minutes I'll give you three two-hour and five-minute movies that I watched within a week of each other. I watched The Dream Team with Michael Keaton, Peter Boyle, Christopher Lloyd. Amazing movie. Can't believe I didn't see it. I watched the extended cut of Super Mario Brothers. Amazing movie. Couldn't believe how much I loved it. And I watched The Boys from Brazil. And that movie is a bastard. It is fucking terrible. And I was going to do it on this show. And I refused. 
fucking fuse. It is terrible. It is the most boring, terrible, boring, terrible thing. So I have I in my old age, I'm 66 percent improved from my 90 minute golden rule. Well, you know, there's certain movies that need the time. Right. And there's some schlocky movies that don't need to be long. Like this isn't very long, I don't think, or it doesn't feel like it is. So it's fine. There's a little aimlessness that feels like filler. You know, the three day gap where they're like talking before they go out hunting. Why are we talking about going hunting? Let's just go hunting for the alien. But I mean, really for a 95 minute film for something that was written and directed by the same guy, it blows my mind because we've talked about it a bunch. I hate movies that are written and directed by the same guy most of the time. Because they just they think that everything is beautiful and sacrosanct and they want to keep it all. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I love Murder Party so much. You could have stretched that movie to be fucking an hour 45. Yeah. They didn't. And I love it. Yeah. Sist. Love that movie. You kept it short. You didn't waste my time. This movie, little bit, little tiny, tiny waste of time. Tiny. No, not bad. Yeah. But I pr- probably at that point, I was looking at my phone or something. I don't know. Um, but I just with with. With the time, I think it's important to look, you know, we don't need a super long movie with that. Like, I don't think we needed it to be any longer, but it did. So I, I do think that there's times where it did lag a little bit when he kidnapped her. I think that's the time where it lags a little bit because she's walking through the house. Like we could have sped all of that up a little bit, yeah. in my opinion. Other than that, like Elizabeth Banks, I think is, she's so great in this. I love her so much. I don't know how you feel about her. The look on your face. Isn't it funny? Like like she her. played Rita Repulsa and yes. she's so fine. Yes. One of few blonde women who I'm like, all right, I'll give it to you. No, she's great as Rita. And, you know, for me, I feel like that Power Rangers uh, reboot or whatever didn't get enough love because I actually really did enjoy it. I thought it was a well, nice. I refuse to see it because they look like chewed up hard candies. They have to like make it relevant. And that's the thing. I think if they had pitched it more towards us, like our old asses who would enjoy it more, if it was more like the, you know, back in the day, it probably would have done better because I can't imagine, I don't know a lot of kids who really are obsessed with Power Rangers now the way that, I mean, I had everything power. I had all the Green Ranger shit. And then when he changed from the Green Ranger to the White Ranger, like it was a whole to do because my mom didn't, couldn't find any more Green Ranger stuff. So then she had to ask somebody at the store and like, they're like, oh yeah, he's the White Ranger. <laughs> so like, Have I told thing. you about the White Ranger from the original Sentai show? It's a little kid who becomes a man when he does the Sentai stuff. Yeah. And he like skateboards and he's a pervert. It's pretty funny <laughs> shit. <laughs> It's like Rufio. Okay. Um, we're, I guess we're getting ahead. You're, on, you're touching on a very good point, though. Nostalgia is a double-edged sword because it can similarly be like a reminder that you're not watching something great. And that's one of the reasons why like, I knew I wasn't the target demo when it came to the new Power Rangers shit. What I like about Power Rangers is none of what I saw in that trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, that trailer was was big and crazy and emotional. I don't give a shit about the emotions of these characters. I want the fucking Keita Amamiya tokusatsu. Let's kick some fucking you know ass in silicone and, and latex and foam rubber. Let's just do this. And that's the same problem I had with this movie with the trailer because I was like, oh, I don't want CGI slugs. And so this all comes back around to, goddamn, I feel like I missed something in my youth because 
you know, this this age group is where I was finding shit like Slugs and Night of the Creeps and all these other films that this references mm-hmm. because, you know, the Internet had kind of blown up and I had my own money to spend on this shit now. And so I, all this. So, yeah. What is your favorite referential thing from this film that we're talking about? Oh, gosh, I think that the I really liked the whole the, all of the trauma references because I actually like got them now. So that really made me excited. And I, I'm so glad that we did that because I feel like there's a lot of trauma related elements to a lot of these movies that I see a lot of these like quote be like big budget B movie TVs that I feel like yeah. kind of pull from trauma. So now that I've, I, now that I'm well versed in it, I feel like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. So thank you. Uh, so I really liked all of that as, as far as that goes, but they had it like, they made it the, even an homage to the thing, like the, yep. The, the movie theater, right? And then the the mayor's last name and you know stuff like that. So uh I thought that RJ was, McCready's funeral home. Oh, the funeral home, the, yeah. Yeah. But then but also the the mayor the is an amalgamation name. of Kurt Russell from both Big Trouble Little China and the thing. Oh wow, okay. So yeah, that's a lot of fun. I love the thing. What a great another great body horror film. Like, hello. Oh, so, it's the best. Yeah. It's that's what like we're not gonna do that movie on this show. It's the same as doing Monster Squad to me. It's like, A, I've heard everything there is to be said about it. And B, I don't think I can add anything to that conversation because it's just such a well discussed movie, an analyzed movie. It's just fucking beautiful. And like with a couple of tweaks, this movie could have been on that level. Like if if there wasn't the thing and you just saw this, you'd be like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Like that movie Cooties. If Cooties came out and like it was like the first zombie movie, you'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that it comes pretty far down the line with a bunch of stuff. I'm glad I also saw it at this age because after like the 2000 aughts, I remember when I saw Krampus for the first time. I wasn't into it. I was like, too referential. You stole a bunch of shit. I see tremors here. Tremors in Slither. I see this. I see this. Fuck off. And then when I watched it again, like the next year, I was like, holy shit, I love this movie. And that's the way I felt about this, where I was like, at the time, I probably would have been too smarmy and been like, who are you to reference all of this shit? Who are you to do the Nightmare on Elm Street bathtub scene? Mm -hmm. But it works out. Had you done any James Gunn shit? What's your experience with James Gunn? Well, he does Marvel stuff now, right? So And DC Suicide Squad's coming out, and that movie's going to blow my socks off with Starro. Well, I like the first one. I Everyone gets like all up in there. And this is my thing, too. It's like you can. Wait, you liked the first Suicide Squad? Yeah, I liked it. I actually, what? and I just rewatched it recently because I remember liking it and I couldn't remember why. And so I rewatched it. But I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. In fact, the sugar skull on my my side, which don't make fun of me. Yes, I have a sugar skull. It's, her face is is modeled after Margot Robbie's. Like I'm a huge fan of her hers. So pretty much anything she does, I'm all for it. So, but it's not that bad. Like I just feel like people get all up in their own ass about things. Like especially with I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, when it comes to like comic books and and Marvel and or DC or like you know all of that kind of. Ju- genre i feel like people just get so up in their ass and they just want to find every little thing wrong with something like i don't know fuck about dc like i'm just watching it because i know these characters from watching batman when i was a kid but like that's it so i for me like i'm you know i think there's a lot going on my issues with that movie were just was the movie you know i don't think that i don't didn't mind necessarily the characters and stuff or the killer croc or whatever it was just 
it was delivered poorly. Like it was done and it was just the bastardization. And it was during that weird adolescence of Warner Brothers where they're like, hey, we're going to change Suicide Squad and try and rip off Marvel and just literally steal James Gunn's swag when it came to Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. You had them trying to, to take over, you know, Justice League and make it the Avengers. I would love to see what the original version of that is, but I don't like really David Ayers. But I'm excited to see the James Gunn version because if you're going to rip off the guy and then hire the guy to do it, it's just going to be laughably better. Yeah. But also our boy Nathan Fillion, who's in this film, is playing the detachable kid in the new one. Oh, awesome. Uh, had you seen, have you seen Super or any of Gunn's other like fringe shit? Super, I think I saw. I think I fell asleep. <laughs> I'll say this. Super is not the best movie, but I like what it did. You know, I also, I mean, I think it unfairly got lumped in there with like kick ass. Kind of mm-hmm. like so there's another film with Woody Harrelson that came out kind of around the same kind of def- Defendor, which is like, oh, is what would be like if there was real superheroes? And then also like Defendor did a little bit of what Super did, where it was like, you kind of have to be, for lack of a better term, retarded to do this. Like it's dangerous. It's stupid. And so Super was really good. Kind of like, you know, turning the genre on its head to an extent. Then he did Guardians of the Galaxy, which was great. I really hate the ending of the first movie, but I love Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I'm one of very few people who really enjoys it. But I also really love, you know, when you could do basically a concept album with your film and have your music tie in. When they do like the the thing with the chain from Fleetwood Mac, I was like, holy shit, like this is the narrative of the movie. (laughs) And so this movie did let me down a bit when it came to music, and I think unfairly so, where I was like expecting this pastiche of all of these great songs. No. Yeah. But also, he was his fucking debut. For a debut, this is a really fucking good movie. Yeah, it's so much fun. And it's the character I just love. I think that for the time that it ran, like you, you get to know all of the facets of all of the characters too, which I, you know, I, for, for something that's supposed to be silly, like it's nice to actually kind of care about these people. And I love the fact that he holds no, nothing back. So what the, the little girls get eaten or taken over by the slugs, the the family's taken over. Like, I just, it just like the same in the same vein as Hills have eyes. I would say that, you know, they're not afraid to like, you know, shoot the mom in the head, steal the baby and kill the, the grandma. Right. And Slither, it's funny. Well, he had to fight for that. Like they didn't want him to have the demonic kids yeah. and like the kids, quote unquote, dying. And he was he like doubled down, which for a young filmmaker, that's pretty fucking ambitious because a lot of people don't have the wherewithal to stand their guns. Like I just watched a whole documentary on Richard Stanley, which we'll get into later on this month. And I was like, holy shit. Like he just literally his whole career got usurped by Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. Like that's just fucking crazy to me. Well, I mean, and that's the thing is that I think that it, it makes it stand out more when you have stuff like that. But again, it's supposed to be comedic too. I don't think it's harmful showing the girls died. I don't, I don't think he got the part where like the slugs took them over. Right. Or no, they did. They're in bed on. Yeah. They're on top of them. So to be fair, we might've been watching a director's cut or something. I don't remember. I don't have a basis for comparison. So maybe the theatrical cut didn't have it, but whatever version I watched for free on Tubi. Yeah. Shameless plug for which I'm not paid. Yeah, no, I did have it on Tubi, but I remember when I saw it, I don't remember seeing that. So I think that the anyways, but I just like the fact that they have, you know, you actually really do. You feel for these characters, you know, everything about them right away. It's all, you know, taken out. Like even Jenna Fisher is so funny in this movie as the secretary. <laughs> like James Gunn's funny. ex-wife. Oh, really? I see. I should have. I didn't look at the cheese name. He gave her this part as a birthday present. Oh, wow. Okay. That's adorable. So the part was originally for a man. 
the guy was like, hey, I want to shoot pilot season. I have the shit. Can I please get out of my contract? So Gunn rewrote it for, for, from a man to a woman, added some dialogue, gave it to his wife. And apparently Jenna Fisher allegedly claims that she screamed with glee because she's always wanted to play a zombie. Aww. And I was like, so much. And I, whenever I get my wife to do an episode of this podcast, it's always like, oh, fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, this lady is like, oh, joy. I get to sit in a makeup chair for four hours and get pustules on my face. Oh, that's a lot of fun. I think I think Sarah secretly likes doing it. So, yeah, she loves it. But Michael Rooker, oh, my God, he's so good at playing such a disgusting sleaze bag. Like you hate him so fucking much. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I read a thing where James Gunn openly talked about this scene where he's trying to make moves on her yeah. being the grossest scene of the movie. And it's very transparent. And I think that's a very insightful thing to do to make because overtly, is he that bad by the common machismo standards? He isn't cheating on his wife overtly at the beginning. Yeah. You know, he he's territorial, but he doesn't like kick James Gunn's ass because he plays Hank, the environmental studies teacher. So ostensibly, he's provided this lady a nice house and she's not putting out. So I could see a ton of dude bros being like, she should have spread those legs, rub that tin on his face. Yeah. But what you see is like the the true nature of man and like man being the evil. And then it's just ma- evil made worse, I think is interesting. Well, I, yeah, he is just very like, you just, ugh, like, you're right. Like, I agree with when I was reading, Gun said the same thing. Like, that is the nastiest part of the movie to me when he's all over her like that. And it's, it's sad because you, not sad, but it, you feel for Elizabeth Banks, Elizabeth Banks character, because as a woman, like she had no choice. She had to marry him very young. And she had to to rely on him because she was left with nothing. And they basically talk about that at the beginning of the movie. That's why she married him, right? Yep. And he's like, so like, won't even let her talk to the dorky teacher, aka James Gunn, you know, for a lesson plan or whatever, because he's so like, he knows that what he has is too good for him. And anybody could just, you know, be, there are so many people that maybe not could offer like everything that he can monetarily, but as far as emotionally, probably. Right. And like, besides that, the other cringy thing that is not horrific is that fucking wedding song is so bad. But so realistic though. Right. You ever have somebody like, Oh, this is our song. And you're like, you picked a fucking terrible song. Uh, yeah. No, like I couldn't even imagine like, like the, like stupid love 80s songs like are just so bad and so cheesy like you're gonna like taint your whole marriage with this really crappy song for like the rest of your life (laughs) but anyway so i i don't know i just the characters to me were great nathan fillion like you feel bad for him like you feel for him you can tell that he's in love with her blah 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 so that was cute the mayor's an asshole but he's also in gilmore girls he plays an asshole there too so payback with mel gibson plays an asshole there too He's really good at playing assholes, I guess. So, hey, if you know if you know your role, I mean, he made a career out of playing an asshole. Good for him. Yeah, for sure. And I really like the effect when his when he comes out at the end after with his head all fuck, fucked up, and he shoots. He's like, just end it, and he doesn't even hesitate. Please. He shoots him in the head. I yeah. love that. Part. Greg Henry, Greg spelled with three G's. So that's another asshole thing from him. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I see that now. Oh, my God. You talked about Nathan Fillion again. I wanted to talk about the premiere. James Gunn claims he wasn't watching the film. He was watching Fillion's mom and he teased Fillion saying that he thought that his mom pissed his pants, pissed pissed her pants, pissed the pants. (laughs) The the mom's pants were pissed, not necessarily by whom, because her reactions were better than his movie, which I think is pretty good. Oh, 
that's so sweet. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the thing is, I'm, I'm kind of sad that it didn't do well. It got horrible reviews, I guess. I, I was reading that it got good reviews from critics, but it didn't do well with, I guess, the people. I blame that trailer. Yeah, I really do. I think that this should have already been a plot. I think we were like we were late enough in the CGI game by 2006 to be like, hey, a return to form. We have practical effects. We have a bunch of gooey, gross shit. Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. If it would have been marketed to me that way, I would have done it. Like Pan's Labyrinth was very much marketed that way of like, hey, look at this return to form. This is like your Jim Henson shit. Yeah. Just so happens that a Nazi gets his face crushed with a wine uh, bottle. I can't. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I sexy. I cannot watch that movie. I got to like, that movie gives me so much anxiety. <laughs> like when they're about to get caught, I had to turn it off and I haven't seen the rest of it. So I don't know what happens. Oh, another reason why I was disappointed by the music. I forgot to mention this earlier. Tyler Bates did the music. And I had found Tyler Bates when we were doing our review of Tammy the T-Rex last month. Shameless plug. So this guy did Guardians 1 and 2, John Wick 1 through 3, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, 300, Watchmen, Sucker Punch, Grindhouse, Rob Zombie's Halloween, The Darkest Hour, all of this shit. And this music is largely forgettable, which not that any of those have like the best soundtrack when it's like the original score. Those have good songs in them, but that's not the score, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a driving score. This isn't like John Wick where I feel like I think that's thumping in my chest like a crank movie, which also came out this year. And I was also sad that James Gunn's band, The Icons, did not appear in this film, which they did in Super. You can hear his oh. very mediocre band on YouTube. They are exceedingly mediocre. Well, you know, I mean, maybe it's just the time like everyone's getting their feelers in there and figuring out how to you know what their style is right so i don't know can i ask you a question yes did you notice that michael rooker's name is grant grant yes (laughs) does that annoy you a little bit well it's like mario mario right (laughs) but without the charm of it it's not a joke it's just a like is it a joke i can't tell but also in terms of names i hate starla hate that name because my dog is named darla so i just kept like why are you adding an s to my dog's name you twits well starla is very like backwoods you know country kind of name right so this is in south carolina like everybody's very you know and it, that's another thing i love about careful Elizabeth. we have surf- south carolina patreon patrons you can't use <laughs> no pejorative language no, I'm not. we love our carolinians I live, in, I live in florida like what can i say about south carolina that yeah. people don't say about my my home state which I, I do love living here so you know suck at everybody but as far as like elizabeth banks i know i'm going to come back to her because i love her so much she does such a good job with her little you know drawl and and just everything she does like even when she's in the hunger games She's Effie and she does all of these fun characters. And like, this one is like completely not her kind of style. She usually plays like the hot chick in the Judd Apatow movies. Right. So for her to go from this to something like this, who she's, people kind of think she's ditzy and dumb. But then at some point she says in the movie, she's able to talk about what the parasite is because she's a fucking biology teacher. So why wouldn't she know what this is? So it makes perfect sense. So there are little touches in the movie, I think, that are actually really smart for the kind of movie that it is that I'd never really picked up on when I was younger because I wasn't really like paying attention to it for that. But now looking at it, I see that there is a little bit of substance here, I guess. Yeah, I don't mind her at all. I think that she does a good job. I think it's a little bit hammy. Her accent's a little too far. Yeah. But I'm one of the people who saw like the True Grit film, the remake, and was like, holy shit, look at all these different Southern draws. Because like, <laughs> you, you know, you do any kind of acting and you're like, that's not that's not that. People will use like Texas for everything. There's lots of minutia. 
and hers is so extra then everybody else is so subdued which also she's an american if i'm not mistaken whereas like nathan fillion's from canadia so he's like yeah, it's an inauthentic accent you son of a northern moose well yeah and that's the thing too is like she's at the same time i feel like her like everyone kind of like looks at her a certain way because she is a little more backwards than everyone else. So I kind of think that it sort of fits in, in that respect too. And then the other chick too, she, she's got a pretty thick accent. The Brenda. Yeah. Oh my God. Brenda, the home wrecker whose home is, re- she looks like a bloated tick at the end. That's a great Oh image. my God. I was reading that. They said that that was like the world's or one of the biggest prosthetics they've ever had to make for somebody. And I'm like, oh my God. Like they said she had to crawl through it, like crawl through all the silicone. Oh my God. I wouldn't, like, I would have been mortified. Like, this is how I'm going to look. <laughs> the only criticism I have of that scene is that she even alludes to the possibility of eating a possum, which is not okay. <laughs> People do that, Jake. It's not okay. <laughs> so going through some of the the movie itself, the first worm, did you catch this? Looks like both a PP and a vagina at the same time. Yeah, I did. Well, I noticed something very vagina-y about it. But do we have like a vagina word? Like we have phallic, like in phallus. But like, what do we say for vagina? Vulvus. Is that true? I think so. Really? Okay. Google so- it. Let's do this right now. V-U-L-V-U-S. Google search. Yup. It's from what we do in the shadows, <laughs> which is a person's name. Vulvus the abhorrent. Okay. But that's <laughs> gastric vulvus is a hiatal hernia. It occurs when a portion of the stomach prolapses. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I, I just don't, I don't know if there's a word for it. I have found phallic. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense. No. How are you people assholes? See? Oh, fanic. Fanic. With an N. Okay. Fanic at the disco. <laughs> just a big it. old vagina in a tuxedo. I love it. Okay. Okay. So yes, <laughs> I noticed it was both fanic and phallic. At the same time. Big fanic of how phallic it was. Yeah, pretty much. We have to say that word. Does your episode. does your fanic shoot darts that it imbibe people? Just, no, I have to ask. Not mine. Not that I know. Okay. I'm writing this. But down. uh the fanic okay. Going back to the little dart thing, did you like the fact that the slug in the girl's mouth gave her the vision of what this monster had been? I think that's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Yeah, no, that was great. It, it was a nice I mean, obviously it was very like you know phallic very phallic i was trying not to say phallic again but yeah no i thought that was great that was a great way for us to know like what the hell's going on actually because you know you know that it's a parasite but what's its intention like what does it need to do like what's it going to continue doing so the fact that it's like going to destroy everything is so interesting because like how many planets and how many places to do this to before and it's not that i guess it's smart I don't know. Like if 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 it was really that smart, would it go to South Carolina or would it go somewhere else? Well, that's the thing is it's incidental. Mm. That's one of the reasons I like it so much is it, it it depicts it as a force of nature, right? This wasn't a deliberate plan. This wasn't you know a, a formula or a strategy. It was an asteroid crashed, and this is what it is. This is the way it's always going to be. It's always going to be doing this because that's its own nature, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have like is it evil? No, it's not evil. In fact, multiple times it illustrates a huge degree of empathy. It's just the other, right? All it's trying to do is procreate, which we are all trying to do. 
It's like imperialism or something, right? But because it's the other, we're like, oh, it's evil. We have to kill it with a boot. And so that's one of the things I really like is, is showing, not telling. Mm-hmm. You know, we just it, within that 20 second little montage, we're like, oh, shit. OK, so it's lived for millennia. It's done this. It's done this to multiple worlds. And now it's here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I, and it did it quickly. So we didn't have to have a whole, you know, backstory or an extra hour out to the movie to figure out what was going on with that, because they could have they could have done that if they really wanted to. but. Yeah. I'm glad they didn't. Ain't no one got no time for that shit. <laughs> Another thing I have to ask you about when it comes to like visuals. Did you like the Mortal Kombat bone breaking vision when Michael Rooker gets tummy spiked that goes into his brain? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, it's uh, like, well, am I watching Romeo must <laughs> die? What is happening on my screen? I know. I know. It's so it's ridiculous. Like, it's just. It's just it, the whole thing is ridiculous, but I I did like that because then we know that I think that was a good way of showing that you know it's going to take him over, and I really think that having Michael Rooker play this kind of character where it happens to him was such a good idea because he does it so well. Like as he slowly started to change, is being a little different. Like when he's buying all the meat in the market and all that. So yeah, yeah but that was it. Did not remind me of Romeo Must Die, <laughs> but I did like. Him. I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out. Oh, my God. What do you also do? Like Black Mask at the time and all those? Yeah, I love that shit. Put some DMX on and watch a little guy kick a bunch of people using Guang Fu. I have to ask you. Okay. The scene where he is impregnating Brenda. A lot of people have criticized James Gunn for being a provocateur. Obviously, he like lost his directing gig on Guardians of the Galaxy at one point, ultimately being reinstated, but people have been very outwardly critical of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch Citizen Toxie, it's a lot of ableist language, there's a lot of shit, but I think he's very aware of what he's doing. Does it speak to you that she is impregnated through her stomach, and even though she is inarguably being raped, it is not like a penal vaginal rape? So much so he even sits beside her and watches her, which I took to be a very key element of restraint in a movie that could have easily gone way too far with all of the fallacies. When I was younger, it didn't bother me. I think it bothers me more now watching that. And I because I just feel like and I think more and this is stupid. Maybe it's not. I think what bothered me the most was that the baby was in the room and all of this was happening. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I know this is just a movie, but in my whole mind, when she's in the part, I'm like, where is the baby? Like, who got the baby? Where did the baby go? Did he kill it? Did he do this? Where the fuck is the baby? And so, you know, I, that maybe that's just like my inner maternal instinct. I have no idea. So that's the point, right? Yeah. And using restraint, he easily could have been like, even a word like, oh, you're hungry for some meat. There you go. Yeah. You wouldn't have to show, but could imply that the kid is eating. There's so many things he could have done to go that extra bit where you're like, nah, you lost me. But I think he did. He very calculatedly went through. And at least for a person with my sensibilities, I was like, this doesn't go too far. No. And I'm very rape wary. Like it makes me uncomfortable. I'll, I'll hate entire films because of it. I just, I, I can't do it. It makes me sick. I'll it, like never rewatch this. I could actually see rewatching. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing because it, you're right. It must have been the way they did it because like when I was younger, I didn't think too much of it. Now I'm more aware like this is not good, but it didn't, like I said, it didn't bother me. It bothered me more that the baby was there. So yeah. maybe that's why, maybe that was calculate, calculative that the baby's there. We're not thinking about what he's actually doing to her because we're more worried about, or at least I was, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's a huge thing when you go throughout the movie, like even in that flashback we talked about earlier, you see the baby. Mm-hmm. 
you know? And so if, if he could have even done in that flashback, if he wanted the baby to die, it could have exploded and been like a, a quick, you know, montage or vignette in that montage or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, and the fact that they didn't, I think was really cool. And also I think the fact that men get it too is very good because like, that's the thing with aliens. Why is aliens so scary for a lot of men? Because basically it's the only like sp- sci-fi movie where a man gets raped, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want to be hot, like, very simplistic and use like basis, you know, terms, right? That's one of the huge elements as to why guys find it scary. And it's so interesting to have those female discussions because you get into it. It's like, that's just like a day in the life, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like nobody ever asked what the astronaut was wearing if he invited it to get his face hugged. And it's kind of the same in this movie. And I think that the duality was cool. Also interesting that there's the rule of like one tentacle being, you had to have both. And so I took that to be like the equivalent of like one injecting eggs and one injecting sperm. And Nathan yeah. Fillion's tummy just got the sperm. Because it came, it looked like jizz coming out of his tum tum. Yeah, you think? Oh God, it was so bad. I was like, uh, and I don't remember that at all. And when I was watching the other day, I was like, look at the fucking way. Who knew knew? Yeah. So you're right. That I agree with that. That the, that was the the jizzy tentacle. Yay. Because you can see, you can even see in the tentacles when he's doing it to her. You can see the things like going through. Yeah. Notice that? Yeah. So that's that's interesting. I didn't even notice that until you said that. Yeah. So that's nice. That's a nice touch. <laughs> we had briefly touched on references earlier on and stuff. Some of the ones that I thought were kind of important, obviously, we had D all of the above Cronenberg. I think even the name of the film, I think that sh- it's derivative of sl- Shivers more than it is so the other s- Slither movie that exists. Mm-hmm. You had the McCready stuff. It's based on the Uzumaki manga, the movie Slugs. Nightmare on Elm Street, tons of references. One that I was kind of surprised by, and I don't think it's a reference. I just think that it's kind of it's, you know, it's poetry. It rhymes was the faculty when he's choking her out and his arm turns into a technical. I was th- oh, reminded yeah. of the, the faculty. Oh, my I God. Loved it. That's I didn't even like think about that. Like, you're, you're right. That is so cool. Ah, I love it. And what's interesting is it never goes back. I really loved the loss of humanity and that there is no dialing it back, that all the people are just dead. They're not cured. I love the permanence of that because I think that it's you could still have a happy ending without a hokey ending. And that's what this movie does. Mm-hmm. Right. For sure. Yeah. Did And also, did you expect Elizabeth Banks to be pregnant with like a, a worm baby thing? Yeah. <sighs> uh... No, I thought I knew there'd be a post credit. So I watched till the credits. In fact, I had to restart it because Tubi was like, well, clearly you want to watch something else. Yeah. You don't want to watch these credits. And I was like, no, no, I did the same let's go back. <laughs> and it's just a cat being darted. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Yeah. No, but the thing is, is like, I feel like somebody's watching me. I know. I thought that Nathan. Oh, my God. I thought Nathan Fillion would be the one. To, to have it in him because he was the one who was poked in the belly with things. So that made <gasps> more sense. What if here's a sequel slither Two. <laughs> you find out that Nathan Fillion and Starla had sex and he puts in the goop from his half of it. And she has her goop from the other half of it. Boom. You get an alien covenant baby where it's like, Oh, we're figuring this out. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. You like this? That's good. I think you should pitch it. I will. I pitched it to you. You're you're Hollywood, right? Oh yeah, sure. Hollywood, Florida, maybe, but not like. <laughs> I get some weird resumes and stuff. The the Gmail account, the slashers pop. People be like, "Hey, 
just so you know, I do all of this. So since you're famous, you can make us famous. I'm like, I'm very not famous. Oh God. Look at our statistics. It's weird, but it's cool. What is my last thing? Oh, my last point I have to make. Fucking idiots. The girls are reading Scare Me and the Girl Who Cried Monster, Goosebumps novels. Mm-hmm. Instead of Goosebumps Horrorland Camp Slither. Are you fucking dense? Well, maybe they didn't want to be too, you know. Would that be meta? I don't know. They didn't want to be too like. Well, also to its credit, Camp Slither came out three years later, but that's fine. Uh, did it really? I thought they it finished. Did. It came out 2009. Oh my God. I thought they were all done. They're still writing. It was the Horrorland imprint. So yeah. Okay, cool. Aw. Well, maybe now they, uh, now I have to read that and see if it is derivative of Slither. That'd be fun. Anyway. Yeah. Honestly, I read that and I was like, this is ridiculous. And this is why you always take that second step. You know, you don't just stop at the face level. You click the hyperlink for the other thing. You go to it. You go, what? Now, now is the time for us to talk to Astro Beef. We've talked all about Michael Rooker shoving a bunch of meat in his face. Astro Beef, Dr. Graham Lau, the cosmobiologist. This has been one of my favorite interviews I've ever gotten to do. And I know I say that about every interview. God damn it. He's a genius. Everybody who we're going to interview this month is a fucking genius. And they make me feel so stupid. And it's so beautiful to feel so stupid. I hope that it inspires you to read and enjoy. You can find him at C-O-S-M-O-B-I-O-T-A.com, which has links to all of his socials. You can find him without a shirt on on his Instagram. He is Astro Buff as well as Astro Beef. So enjoy my conversation with Dr. Graham Lau. This is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show. I'm still not entirely sure how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me for the first time is my new best friend, Astro Beef. Graham Lau, who is, <laughs> let's go through your credentials, a research scientist and director of communications and marketing with Blue Marble Space, director of logistics at University Rover Challenge, the host of the delightful show, Ask an Astrobiologist. Is there anything you don't do? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I haven't taught ballet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do a lot of other things. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. Exactly. Uh, I just recently started teaching meditation to people. Um, yeah. I don't know. I do everything and anything I can when it comes to sharing science with other people from going to museums and schools, you know, working with Boy Scout troops and Girl Scout troops and anything I can do to share science with children of all ages, uh, as well as getting involved in the conversations about what it means to be human here in the cosmos and whether or not we're alone. I love it. So there are so many things I want to ask you. I I love being the dumbest person in a room because it, it just excites me, the amount of knowledge that you have that might not have ever even occurred to me in my plebeian existence. So the, I guess, thesis of our discussion, what scares you as an astrobiologist? Yeah, wow. Well, first off, just remember, if you're ever the smartest person in a room, you're you're in the wrong room. Yeah, exactly. Right? You're not going to learn anything that way. You yep. need to go get into better rooms. Uh, and so that's always the thing. You know, you should always be challenging yourself to learn more. And part of my explorations in my own life, in my academic pursuits, as well as just reading a boatload of science fiction and playing video games and watching movies my whole life, there are some things to be really excited for, for our future. And some things to be very terrified for. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you want to start off on the more terrifying realm, I am a huge fan of science fiction horror, the genre in general. Yeah. And some of the things that we've seen there aren't necessarily impossible. 
You know, when you start talking about what's possible, you know, it really comes down to what's probable, what might happen to us. And so, you know, you know, we've had all these stories of like asteroids and comets hitting our planet and causing large scale devastation. That's a little bit less likely now. Yeah. At least the, the big ones. We have we have really great programs. A lot of amateur astronomers around the planet are mapping out the really big things that would cause large scale devastation. It's the much smaller things now that we have to worry about, like uh, the Chelyabinsk uh, fireball that came down over Russia some years back that blew up and knocked people off their feet and sent a bunch to the hospital. Oh yeah. That was a very small piece of rock that we had no idea was going to hit the earth that day. And we get hit by small things like that pretty often. And so those things are actually more problematic than the large scale things. But if you really want something to keep you awake at night, the largest existential threat when it comes to the potential for alien life right now is what happens if there is an intelligent alien race out there who come into our solar system and for whatever reason might want some of our resources or might want to use us as a resource. And maybe we won't have the potential to stop them. hundred percent. And that's kind of scary, right? <laughs> it's nerve wracking. Honestly, like, you know, I was talking to Dr. Chris MP. We talked about solar flares and black holes and those things are existential threats, but they feel inevitable. You know, it's like if I'm in a shitty little boat and a giant tidal wave is going to get me, there's nothing I can do. But you can pretend you can fight an alien. But in, in all actuality, there's not many aliens I think we could logistically fight hypothetically, right? It depends, right? I mean, we don't know what aliens are going to be like, but I love the movie Independence Day. Yep. I find it highly unlikely we're going to drop some old Apple code and drop a virus <laughs> in an alien computer system that's going to take down their entire mothership and wreck everything. But, you know, we humans, we, we are a curious you know, species. We, yep. we do have that propensity for thinking outside of the box that's led us to where we are. So maybe an alien species wouldn't think the same way that we would. Maybe we would have some propensity for thought and, and for reasoning that could allow us to find a way around it. There's also the possibility that maybe alien life will be more benevolent and maybe want to share things. Yeah. Maybe, maybe right now there's aliens out there who've been watching us for some time who are waiting to let us join the Galactic Federation of Planets or whatever the heck it is. Yeah. Uh, who are just waiting for us to get our stuff together and stop being so terrible to each other and to our planet. Maybe uh, my friend David Grinspoon, for instance, he's argued that maybe we're entering into this period where we will soon be allowed to join that group by showing that we can make positive decisions to affect the benefit of our planet. Yeah. Um, so who knows? I don't know a whole lot of very conservative like Trekkers. I'm a huge Star Trek The Next Generation fan, and I love that Like my, my job is science. I'm not worried about commodities and famine thinking, and I find that so restrictive for so many people, and we contextualize everything in a limited resource system. You know, like you said, the first thing that we have to think about with an invading alien is if they want something or need something, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's two things that can happen there. Maybe they want our resources or maybe just like us stepping on an anthill on our way somewhere else. Maybe they just won't even think about what they're doing to us. So there's malevolence. And then there's the, the apathy region as well, where maybe they just won't think of us as a being worth considering. Um, recently on my show, I had on uh, Dr. Sue Schneider. Uh, she's currently at Florida Atlantic University. She's the director of the Center of Mind. Uh, she's also one of the recent chairs in astrobiology, the library of Congress. And Sue's research has been in the realm of philosophy, specifically philosophy of mind and artificial intelligence. And what does the future hold for the human species? And she and I had a lovely conversation about what happens if the post-biological state is actually the more common state for life out there. Maybe 
maybe most of the living things in the universe are actually robots or machine biospheres of some form. And so maybe, you know, little lowly organic beings like ourselves don't really matter to them. Uh, It's really hard to say. Or not to get too Philip K. Dick about it, but, you know, would it become indistinguishable from organic matter if you get to that hyper level of sophistication with technology? Right. That blows my mind to think about the automation that exists. You know, it's kind of quaint, but that movie Wally, like all the people are gone, but that little robot's still going. Like it or you can go into like Star Trek with V'ger and stuff. You know what I mean? But like I, I am very much of that mind where I think that probably one of the scarier ideas is that beyond this race's extinction, the technology just kept going. Cause I feel like are you constantly aware that we're going to be like integrated cyborgs by the time we die? Like my, my smartphone's going to be in my hand, right? I mean, yes and no, right? So there's a lot of steps that have to happen before we get to that future. A lot yeah. of us have envisioned. And so, yes, Neuralink is happening right now and they've shown some cool, interesting things, but those things are still not, you know, having a phone integrated in your hand, you know, putting your hand on the wall and then all of a sudden your brain connects to the wall and turns the wall into a phone. Oh, yeah. Like we've seen the science fiction movies in the recent Total, Total Recall. Total Recall, yeah, dude. Um, and, and so, like, we're not quite there yet. But it is coming, and I think it's coming faster than a lot of people are aware of. Oh, for sure. And so some folks have talked about like this idea of the, the singularity and transhumanism and us kind of merging with machines and, and doing brain downloading into machines. It's definitely coming, but there are some real hurdles in getting there. And I think one, one key hurdle as far as the philosophy of, of it all goes is, is the con- concept of consciousness. Yes. Will we still be conscious beings once we start doing that? Is consciousness inherent in our brains? Can we transmit consciousness with all the data stored in the information in our brains somewhere else? And the jury is still very far out on that one. Uh, you know, we don't, we, we have some definitions for life, but still we haven't had like an agreed upon definition of life. Yep. And as hard as that is to wrap your head around, we have no idea really what consciousness is. We don't know if our state of consciousness is just one of many that could be possible in the universe. And some people think that our brains evolved as an organ that allows us to be conscious, that the consciousness comes from our brains, whereas some others think that consciousness pervades the universe and our brain is more like a receiver that's allowing us to tap into what makes us conscious uh, and there's a whole bunch of ideas in between those two kind of, you know, far ends of the spectrum. And so we really don't know. And, and when we start downloading our brains and computers, who knows what's going to happen then? Yeah, honestly, like my all time favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation is Measure of a Man, where data gets put on trial, essentially, to be like, are you life? You're, mm-hmm. you know, the synthesoid and everything. And it's there's so many philosophical ramifications that come out of that you know it gets to that uh, the prosthesis argument i'm sure you're aware of in, in philosophy where at what point do you stop being yourself and become a new thing and that goes with the, the digital consciousness and i honestly am too dumb to even rationalize that it just i don't want to be the guy to make that decision but at a certain point you feel like we have to integrate with technology because physiologically we can't have evolved enough to catch up, right? I mean, as my oldest obsession is dinosaurs. And so I talk about evolution in terms of millions of years, but think of the physiological impulses we have as humans from the aught 19s to now. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, we've come very far. And if you look at how we're progressing, one reason for that idea of the singularity is that we've seen our technological progress going up this, this really steep curve. But the thing about being on a curve like that is you never actually know where on the curve you are. We might still be in the very bottom where we're just starting to slope up. 
Or we might be on the part just before it goes asymptotic, and then a lot of things start changing very quickly. And you know, we really don't know. And I love that you, that you brought up Measure of Man. Great episode. I love when Picard is giving that speech to the judge and and arguing on behalf of data that we don't know what is conscious, we don't know what is alive, and and you know, he looks at everyone and like, do do you know? Do you know? And yeah. no one really has an immediate answer to that. And we're kind of in that boat right now. We don't know when we create. Not just artificial intelligence. We're we're already dabbling in machine learning and artificial intelligence right now. Oh yeah, but it's very very basic right now. When we get to the point where we develop a super intelligent artificial intelligence, something that can think on its own, that might allow us to start asking it questions about what it means to be conscious. It might be able to outthink us in that realm, which is kind of intriguing as well. But I, I one thing I love in that episode, and it's one thing that a lot of us are arguing for right now in the realm of artificial intelligence is that we need to start having those conversations right now. Yes. Not just to be prepared for how we're going to treat whatever we create, but also to ensure that we're not setting ourselves up for our own devastation exactly. and the obliteration of our own, our own species by creating these things ourselves. Yeah. I'm a huge Marvel Comics guy. Ultron. Did nobody fucking... I know the age of Ultron was bad, but like somebody had to have listened to the moral of that where the way like and it goes back even Black Adam from, you know, DC comics of like the best way to protect humans is to eliminate humans because we are our own destruction. Uh, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that came up with uh, Isaac Asimov too, and the robot laws, right? With the iRobot series. I think too many people want to write science fiction stories and use the robot laws as though they were written to actually be something to control robots without really ever having read the stories. The whole point of the robot laws was that they create a whole lot of problems that they're, they're not straight cut. There's, there's no white and black. There's so many areas of gray. And one of those areas is, yeah, the best way to protect humans is just obliterate all humans. No problem left. Right. And so, and that's part of the problem with this idea of the robot laws. And it's why we have to have those conversations right now. And I'm glad, you know, for astrobiology, it's part of our realm as well, because we think a lot about the future of our civilization because that's important to figuring out whether or not we actually have any neighbors out there yeah. and if we do what they might be like. Yeah. I, honestly, originally I hated the other two installments in the matrix trilogy. I, I did like animatrix, but my point is at one point I was like, when it gets to the cyclical idea of how many times this battle has gone forth at a certain point, can't you argue that the computers are protecting humans as it's the only viable way to survive in a planet without an ecosystem any longer? And they're our protector and our destructor. If you can't put that in simple binary code, like how do you expect a computer to be nice to you? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. <laughs> and, and, and in those movies, they're definitely playing on a lot of stories from our, oh, yeah. our mythology, our religion, our history. I mean, the first Matrix was mind-blowing for a lot of people, but anyone who studied philosophy is like, I know most of what's going on already in this story. It's It's been you know from Plato and so many other places and in Gnostic Christianity and all these other realms that these things are popping up in this story. And those ideas of cyclical birth death, rebirth are common for a lot of our stories through history. And it also makes a lot of people wonder with the the birth of our universe and the Big Bang, was there nothing before our something or was there something before our something? And if so, you know, what what happened to cause that whole process? And that makes us think a lot about the long-term future of our universe as well. I mean, we humans, if we're lucky, we won't destroy ourselves and might continue for a few more millions of years maybe billions of years, whatever that's going to look like in the long term. Yeah. Uh, and, and what will that be for us then? What will our universe be at those long-term periods of time that are 
so far beyond our current realm of thinking, it's hard to even even think about what that's going to look like for us. I remember being a kid, and I don't know if you've ever seen the show Reboot, but it takes place in a computer, and there's Bob, and he's the guardian. He's got glitch, and basically they're fighting the user. But there's a really dark element of that in that like there's some an arbitrary like sense of reset. And I was talking to Chris Impey, like I said, we were talking about the the constant, the omnipresent expansion of the universe. And what if one day you just hit the wall and then everything comes back to that single point and the Big Bang starts again, almost as if we were one of those stupid like desk magnet clicky things on some giant like mutoids desk. Oh. Let's let's uh, let's talk about some of the aliens because the computer aliens are scaring me already. Um, yeah, that's, that's terrifying enough, right? <laughs> how do you, as a scientist, talk in terms of astrobiology when we don't have tangible, you know, eh, alien autopsy? The VHS tape from the '90s is somewhat debunked. I don't know if it's actually accurate. So, bearing that in mind, how do you even get into that realm of thinking? Yeah. Honestly, I think all of us are astrobiologists to a degree ah. because astrobiology is our quest to understand the nature of life. Yeah. So if you're trying to understand what it means to be human and your place in time, you're part of that story. And yeah, there's a lot of science involved. There's, there's science in trying to figure out how does life start on a planet? Did life start on our planet? We, we don't know. Maybe life came to our planet from Venus or Mars or oh, somewhere yeah. else. Um, you know, how do, how do life and a planet evolving together through time, how do they create a biosphere as diverse as our own, as unique perhaps as our own? Uh, how do we look for life elsewhere? If, if life ever existed on Venus, is it there still now in the clouds? Mm -hmm. uh, if there ever was life on Mars, are there fossilized signs of that life somewhere on the Martian surface? If life can actually start inside of an ocean, perhaps around hydrothermal vents, is there life right now in our own solar system in Europa and, and Enceladus and other worlds for us to go look at? We don't know. And so we're using a lot of our science and engineering to try to figure out how we can answer those questions. And then honestly, a huge thing that's happened in our lifetimes is ever since 1995 and the discovery of the first exoplanet around a main sequence star, oh we now have thousands of them we found. It tells us there must be many hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of planets out there in our galaxy alone. And we now have the telescopes to actually look at some of these worlds and start looking for potential signs of life out there, which really starts opening things up a lot from, you know, back in the seventies and eighties and stuff. Now it's a whole new game with exoplanets. Oh, it's insane. So there's a lot of science in this realm and also a lot of philosophy, a lot of other realms. For instance, there's a lot of sociology that comes into play with assessing, you know, how do we as scientists go about answering these questions, but also what does it mean to human civilization? for us to be at this moment where we can actually ask that question yeah. and get some kinds of answers from it. And there's a big worry, I think, especially when you get into exoplanets, because exoplanets are endlessly fascinating because the question as to what life would be like beyond is speculative and it's enthralling, you know, but what I always wonder is how do you monetize that? And if you can't monetize that in direct dollars and cents, who is going to fund that? And then it's like, oh, because you think about it, like last year, 2020, they're like, oh, yeah, UFOs exist. Not saying aliens, UFOs. And nobody gave half of one shit about that. And it's like, if you can't monetize it, does it exist in 2021? <gasps> yeah, I mean, I, I would argue a bunch of us cared about that. Uh, well, yeah. But... I, I watch those videos over and over again. Whenever yeah. the Pentagon has released some footage of 
of UFOs or what we also call UAP, uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon, because we don't know if they're always objects. Sometimes it's like light sh- shimmering through a cloud or something like that. And so UAP is maybe a better term for it. Yeah. I personally, I don't really subscribe to the idea that they're aliens. I won't say it can't be aliens, but the one reason I don't like that idea is because it seems to me like if aliens could travel through interstellar space to come here, and for whatever reason, they wanted to hide themselves most of the time, then it seems like they wouldn't really be that bad at doing it. Yeah. seems like being, being seen by itself is the evidence that it's not aliens, at least to me. That, that, that seems like the logical conclusion to that question. But I think it's still worth you know, researching and looking into it and, and seeing, like, can we learn more about what's going on? Maybe we'll learn more about some cool atmospheric physics and, and other stuff along the way. Um, so that's worth looking into. But when it comes to monetizing our, our search for extraterrestrial life, um, as much as I hate to say it, there are some billionaires on our planet who are very invested. Uh, and so there are people with a lot of wealth and power in our world who are invested in these questions, um, for better or for worse. And the reason that I say that it could be for worse is because they also have the power to let us go do these things, let us do these searches, put humans on Mars and do things without all the red tape and without the appropriate you know, conversations as a society a before point. we do the thing. But I'm also very glad that, that many of them, you know, at least some of them, are, are taking such a huge interest in space exploration and artificial intelligence. They're positioning themselves to become the first trillionaires and maybe even eventually quadrillionaires, yeah. which is very smart on their part. But it also means that they're investing in these larger scale things that are large scale existential threats and existential possibilities for us. Absolutely. So in your perfect scenario, I say alien and you as a genius about aliens, can you describe what your mental image is? Oh, man. Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because I have so many different ones and I have so much from science fiction, too. And I'm like, I love the film Alien. Yeah. I, I know that for a lot of people like the Xenomorph. Yeah, it has two arms and two legs. It's very human-like. And a lot of people, we've, you know, we, we've, we astrobiologists have like shoved it in your face for decades now that there's a good chance aliens won't look like us. They oh, won't have sure. two arms and two legs. They won't be wearing a giant you know, costume. At the same time, I love the idea of like the eggs. And the astronaut finds the egg and it has the face hugger that can embed uh, uh, you know, the, this, this, this embryo for growing the xenomorph inside. And it has like great biology for allowing itself to not be removed from the host. Yeah. There's so many things about that idea that I, I really appreciate that come from our own biology that we see here on earth from how parasites work, where we're fighting a virus right now that does a very similar thing. It attaches itself to the cell. It breaks into the cell and throws some material in to then earth out more of the virus. And it's very similar to what we see with the xenomorph eggs and alien. Uh, but there's some, also some really cool ideas from science fiction that, what make me want to, you know, explore some more of what's possible out there in next generation. There's an episode where there's this being called Gamtu who is able to survive in the depths of space. And it makes me wonder, could there be biospheres out there, maybe on worlds that are orbit or that are rotating very quickly where something in that biosphere is able to be ejected into space and can evolve in space and actually travel itself, emit some kind of material in space and travel. And we don't know. It's, it could be possible. Uh, there are lots of other films and, and other ideas in science fiction that make me just want to know what's possible out there. One thing I loved in Avatar, and I'm very much looking forward to the next Avatar films. One thing I really loved was the idea that this world, this moon, all of the beings were connected to each other's consciousness yeah. in this world. And they, they could establish a bond to each other and sense and think and feel for each other. And it makes you wonder what, what is the, the larger possible range for conscious experience. You know, we, we humans, we like to think of ourselves as individuals. We're really not. We have 
teeming inside of us and on us many other organisms. And we also now are at this part, this place where our intelligence is not just what's inside of our brain. It's what was connected to the internet and all of our friends. We have a shared intelligence now as, as, as a species, but it makes you wonder too, like what is the other possible range out there for species for what they would consider being an individual being versus being part of a community or part of a biosphere. Yeah. Um, James Lovelock, you know, many, many decades ago proposed this idea of the Gaia hypothesis that the earth is like a, a large organism of its own. And part of what's going on with the, the earth is it's really trying to maintain its own homeostasis. And so maybe part of that could be when we humans screw things up and destroy the environment, the earth fights back and destroys us just to maintain that, that way for it to be as a being. But maybe we'll find other worlds out there that are very much large organisms. Maybe we'll find a world like Solaris where the whole world has its own consciousness and we don't know what that's going to look like. And so when I have like dreams about what alien life could be, and, and I've done this since I was a kid, you know, and watching like old Discovery Channel documentaries that had like the really crappy early 90s CGI trying to show what aliens would look like on oh, the alien yeah, world. Dude. You know, and like I still have those dreams where like I go into like an alien jungle or an alien desert and try to imagine what the creatures would be like and what the ecology would be like for a biosphere of alien beings together. And the cool thing about it is that we are only really limited right now by our knowledge of physics and chemistry because we don't have any like universal theory of life to tell us what to expect yet. And what's amazing about that when you get into the the questions of the endless possibilities, right? Like I said, I'm a dinosaur guy. I love them, right? But you have constant war within the community. Oh, this person says that this theropod does this. And this person says, no, that's not true. This theropod does this. But what I find fascinating about astrobiology is I very rarely, very rarely see a line drawn in the sand where somebody says, no, absolutely not. When usually it's like, hey, maybe let's keep looking. I love that like eagerness because I never see that exclusionary kind of ideology where it's like, oh, you would only have an exoskeleton or you would only have a spore reproductive system or anything like that. Um, in terms of, uh, I'm getting excited. The movie, The Darkest Hour is one of my favorite uh, sci-fi films of all time. It, you might remember it's the movie where the aliens are largely invisible through the whole thing and they do stuff with light bulbs and blah, blah, blah. But I always love the idea that like we might not even be able to perceive these things because they wouldn't be necessarily operating on the same level as us. You were talking about physics being a huge example. Are there any things like that where you think that we just, it could be in plain sight, but we're just not looking in the right way? Absolutely. So we, we've had this issue before in astrobiology. We've considered it a lot. What if our perception is really limiting how we're looking into the universe for alien life? And when it comes to SETI, the, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, I mean, we've barely started looking. I mean, we've only touched a very minuscule bit of, of the electromagnetic spectrum that comes to us from out there. And I only have looked at a few places in the sky at a very small period of time. And so there's a good chance that we're missing out on what could be out there. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, people are like, why hasn't SETI found anything after all these decades? We haven't looked long enough or, or in, in enough of the sky and with enough different levels of radiation. But maybe we're also limited in how we think about what to look for. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, our, our perception of time is based on our biology here on Earth. You know, may, maybe aliens won't perceive what we think of as seconds and minutes as anything of value. Maybe their, their, their thought on time would be a much shorter period or a much longer period. Maybe there's some alien life form out there where 
its biological processes, its chemistry move a lot slower. Maybe it has a much longer lifespan. And so maybe for whatever this being could be, maybe what we feel, feel like a year or two passing by is nothing but a blink in its eye. And so it doesn't really think on the same time scales as we do, maybe not even the same space scales as we do. You know, we're very much built, we're evolved to think about things that are roughly six feet tall, about like we are, you know, a couple hundred pounds maybe. Um, But then, you know, maybe alien life could be the size of a planet, or maybe there's much smaller beings, like some of the smaller creatures we have here on earth that could be like that. But even, you know, in our perception, there's a talk that I give about the craziest creatures on earth, about how weird biology here on earth might teach us about what to look for out there. And I like to remind people that there are animals on our planet that perceive in an alien way compared to us. Oh, yeah. It's just so radically different that we can't even mentally comprehend. And one of my favorite ones is the greater wax moth. Okay. It currently has the greatest range of hearing that we know of on the planet. Uh, we humans hear from about 20 hertz out to about 20,000 hertz. And a, a hertz is, is a vibration per second. So we hear 20 vibrations per second out to about 20,000 vibrations per second in the air coming towards our ears. Uh, You might know like a dog hears out to about 50,000 hertz. Uh, So dogs have much better hearing, which is why if you blow on a dog whistle, it doesn't sound like anything to us. And we also lose some of our hearing as we get older, which is why there are these weird loitering uh, alarms that basically are made so that only young teenagers are hearing them because they're at the furthest extent of our hearing where a bunch of us old folks, we're not going to hear 20,000 hertz anymore. Our ears get bad over time. Yeah. But the, the greater wax moth, it hears over a range of 300,000 hertz. And that range is entirely outside of our hearing range. And so all of the things that it's hearing are <laughs> things that our brains can't even process. Yeah. We, can, we, we, can, we can measure it. We can measure those data. We can see those vibrations in the air using, using science, using the tools and instruments of science. And we can plot it into a chart to try to help us understand it, but we really can't mentally come, you know, think about what it is to hear in that range, which is cool. I mean, it's cool. So we have that on earth. So what does it mean that alien life is doing out there? Yeah. What are they doing with the senses that we have or with other senses we haven't even yet discovered? Yeah, I very rarely talk about meanings of my tattoos because I always find it a little odd and invasive, even though it's a billboard <laughs> on my skin. But one of my all-time favorite tattoos, it's a, I have a gadfly uh, tied to an hourglass with uh, a, you know some kind of emblem for each of the seasons on the corners. Neil deGrasse Tyson said, what does a mayfly understand of the passing of seasons? A- and we have such a fucking narcissistic perception of time and space to think of like, that's one of the things I love about the humility that dinosaurs impose on you. Cause you're like, how many fucking millions of years I haven't lived through 40. What? And that is the same exact thing you're talking about. I mean, literally just the wavelength of a radio signal, you know, it's version of Morse code could be eons and we would never even know. Good. Yeah. Yeah, and also things like locusts right now on on the eastern part of the United States, uh, the cicadas that are coming out. Yeah. Uh, these cicadas, you know, they take 17 years under the ground before they <laughs> come out and climb a tree, have sex, and then die. I mean, these things, that little period of its life is all that we really knew of it for the longest period of time. And we still don't know that much about what's going on under the ground for those 17 years while it's down there, just kind of doing its thing. Yeah. You know, we haven't really observed them down there that much compared to what we see when they come out. Maybe aliens are like that. Maybe there's alien worlds where the biology comes in these large cycles. We really don't know. And that's one of the things that's the most psychotic to think of is so much of our perception and and logic is binary. 
it is or it isn't, you know? And when you think of the spectrum of everything, we have such just a narrow focus. Um, We're getting close to, to time. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is scary? Ooh, that I think is scary. Um, I'm going to take that and I'm going to slowly turn it around. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm going to start off with, with what's scary right now. You know, we're in this pandemic right now. There are still people dying around the planet. We are not out of the pandemic. Nope. Even though some of our more developed nations that have more technological capability, more money, more GDP are starting to turn around a good bit and starting to come out of things a little bit. There's still a lot of places in our world that are, there's a lot of suffering going on. Um, it's very worrisome. And, you know, people warned for a long time that we could face another global pandemic. It was almost a certainty. And it's going to happen again. Um, We're still going to face it. And I think we we need more long-term thinking. We humans are so short-sighted in our thinking. And again, that comes from our biology. We evolved to think on a timescale of, can I get some food to eat? Can I mate? And how do I not get killed by the leopard? You know, and and those are short timescale things. We, We didn't evolve to think, you know, What's going to happen to future generations a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now? We need more long-term thinking to start getting us into some more, more of these existential threats to think about them and also to prepare for our future, to prepare for what happens if we meet alien life, to prepare for the next pandemic, to prepare for what happens when our population gets to the point where we can't feed anyone, really. If we start, if we follow the same track of population growth that we are now, in about 50,000 years, we're looking at something like 8 trillion people. Uh, that's a lot more humans than we currently have on the planet. And we don't know how we're going to feed those people with our current technologies, our current agriculture. There are a lot of things to be worried about for our future and a lot of things that are scary, but also a lot of things to be really excited about. I think we, human ha- we humans have a very beautiful future together in space. Mm-hmm. I think we can start making changes now for the long term to improve our planet, improve the biosphere and our place on it. And so personally, one thing I, I'm currently thinking about a lot is how do we how do we engage in that? How do we get people to start thinking for that future? Yeah. And so two of the things that I think are going to be most important right now for getting people thinking, I, I think we need better education, better political systems, better economic systems. Those Absolutely. are all super important. But two things I think you know are, could be really, really helpful right now in, in building this future a lot of us want to see. One of them is the overview effect. This is a term coined in 1987 by the author Frank White for the experience that the astronauts have when they go to space and they see our Earth from the outside. They have a, a, a cognitive shift, a psychological shift in their awareness of themselves and what it means to be human. And a lot of them report after having seen this, they see the Earth with no borders around our nations they see it as one large complex system, it inspires many of them to want to do something to make things better. So getting more people from more backgrounds and more perspectives into space, I think is super important. I think in the coming decades, when we see more people from various nations around the world who are artists and poets, musicians, lawyers, politicians, historians, and everything in between into space and experiencing it from their, their own perspectives and sharing that, I think that shared language of what it means to be human on this planet together will help us to get everyone else to think more about their own place. And then I also, I also have been arguing a lot lately that I would love to see more children being taught how to meditate. I agree. I think a meditation practice, taking some time to be with yourself, to, to learn to process your emotions a little bit, your anger and your happiness, all these things that we feel and we think, 
taking a moment to step back from that and, and just observe yourself in that, I think it will help a lot of us to make uh, more informed decisions, to be less apt to just jump to anger and emotional outrage, to break the, the, the current system of social media. Yeah. I mean, social media, it wants our attention and it wants us to be angry because social media, you get more attention, you get more clicks when someone's angry and outraged. But if people were more thoughtful about their engagements, I think social media could be a very beautiful tool for all of us to share in our experiences together. And so I think right now getting humanity moving forward into a better future for all of us and one where we're prepared for the next pandemic or an alien invasion um, and as much as we can be is to engage in those two things, the overview effect and meditation. I completely agree. You look at social media, it's, it's again, what I talked about binary. It's the best thing ever. It's the worst thing ever. There's no gradation. There's no you know, resolution in between. There's no gray area. And that's one of the things, going back to an earlier point we were talking about when it comes to physiology, it drives me crazy that people think that 100 years ago, I would have been talking to you via scroll with a fucking feather by candlelight. Now I'm talking to you through a just incredibly complex, our, our primitive brains cannot comprehend this and we are being constantly bombarded with information and i am i'm hugely of the um, same mind when it comes to meditation like with my kids we don't punish we meditate we're mindful and i think that that it's this weird again kind of binary thing where it's like oh either you're like a spiritual sensei or you're a scientist and they try to create this false partition when i think that to be kind of the whole person you need a lot of both right absolutely so it used to be in the, the earliest days of the sciences, and, and not even the earliest days, I mean, that's, that's ancient Greece and ancient China, but you know, in, in the, the journey into the Renaissance and up to the Enlightenment, we didn't have chemists and geologists and biologists and physicists. We had people who were studying natural philosophy yeah. and natural history. They were doing a little bit of everything. And they were also considering, you know, what does my religious understanding of the world, what does my spiritual understanding of the world mean for this? Yeah. You know, what, what do other languages, other mythologies, other people have to do with what I'm studying as well? And I, I think one thing we're seeing with things like geobiology and astrobiology, which aren't really disciplines themselves, they're, they're more like these large aggregate fields of understanding that bring together people from various backgrounds. They're making a lot of us, you know, kind of start breaking away from that sub-subdivision of learning into something that really makes us consider the, the, the larger holistic aspect of being a human and exploring this, this, this place in the cosmos that we all share. And some of that's being done through science and some through engineering, some through philosophy and various other realms. And yeah, I, I, I never enjoyed that thought that by being a scientist, I can't also be, you know, I can't have a meditation practice. I can't be a spiritual leader. I can't be someone who's involved in conversations around, you know, things that are kind of outside of the realm of science. A lot of ideas in the supernatural and the mystical, they lie well outside of the science, yeah. but there's still things that we experience in our lives that give us the language and the tools to share in those conversations together. And I think we need more scientists engaging in those conversations. I'd also love to see more, more religious and spiritual leaders getting involved in scientific conversations about what we're discovering, what we're finding. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. I really had wanted to have a, an astrobiology conversation with my old pastor, from when I was a young kid, I left the church many, many years ago, but yeah. I was raised in a Christian church and we had a pastor, uh, Pastor Tom. And one thing I, I used to love, even after I left the church and I, I had many conversations with him about not being Christian and, and not really you know, sharing his belief in, in, in the world. 
But I love that he was aware that I was studying in biology and chemistry and I worked for NASA and he was aware of these things. And every time I would go home to my, my old home in Pennsylvania and, and I'd see him for you know funerals and weddings and those kinds of things, he would always want to talk about what we were learning from the Hubble Space Telescope and what we were learning about astrobiology and what we were discovering on Earth and hydrothermal vents and other places. He was thirsty for knowledge about what we were learning through science. And then he would always like find a way to help kind of frame his understanding of it yeah. through his faith and his belief. And I, I really enjoyed those conversations so much with him. Yeah, completely. I, that's one of the things I find so fascinating about people like Isaac Newton. You know, he didn't have all the answers. So at a certain point, he reached that precipice and, and looked beyond and said, well, that's clearly that's God. And then those borders have been met and then it sets a new benchmark. And I think that contextualizing things, it's all religion in, in my experience is all a framing of our perceptions. It, it is how we rationalize the scariest thing of non-existence and, and resources and interpersonal relationships. So I completely agree. And I realize I've kept you a little bit longer than I had proposed. So I want to make sure I mentioned Cosmo, B-I-O-T-A dot com. Can you tell me about your website, your online presence, so all of my goons can follow you to infinity and beyond? Oh, <laughs> yeah. science. Uh, yeah. Uh, please. Uh, so cosmobiota.com is my website. Uh, biota is a word that implies biological material. Um, it's what we use. When we talk about finding biota in the atmosphere. We're looking for spores or pieces of life. Yeah. And so I created the term cosmobiota to imply the living matter of our universe. And so you can find me there. There's links there to all of my social media. I'm at cosmobiologist on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at astrobiologist on LinkedIn and Facebook. I peruse Reddit a good bit. I do try to engage sometimes there and not as much. Um, it's scary. People are mean. Yeah, some, some people. <laughs> um, you know, the social media and the internet can sometimes be a, be a, a, a cesspool of yeah. anger and outrage. But there's also some little beautiful corners out there to find as well. And Crazy, right? there are many of us who are trying to use it to engage in thoughtful conversations together. And I love it. I find that so often scientists and people who are at least interested in science are so willing to exchange information rather than engaging in that exclusionary, oh, well, you don't know this? Well, fuck you. No. And I think that kind of goes to our horror community. So many people are like, oh, well, you don't like this very specific niche? Well, you are a poseur. You, my friend, are not a poseur. You have been an absolute delight. And I would like to say that if you ever have anything to peddle on this show, you have an open invitation because I loved this. I could literally talk to you for seven more hours if time wasn't an issue. If time was uh, the reverse of a gadfly, I would be talking to you for seven hours. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure joining you. Awesome. Stay safe and have a great day. And that was my discussion with Astro Beef. Adrian, you loved it. It's great. Now, we have a whole month of alien shit coming our way. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in aliens? That's a loaded question. Like, I guess. Yeah. I mean, something has to be out there, right? Do I believe yeah, I, that they're like us? I don't know. It's so self-indulgent to think that there are aliens who are like us. Well, I think they'd you know, be better a, than us. <laughs> um, yeah, so? to an extent. I My issue with people who think that aliens are like humans are, is the same issue I have with people who think that gods would be like humans. It's so self-indulgent to think that something of like omnipotence and omniscience would also be a petty and vindictive little bitch like the Old Testament God. You know, like these things, like it, they should yeah. be something we aspire to be. But like you get to like imagine explain like uh, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Love it. Like, you know, we talked about episodes like I talked about Darmok on an episode of 
B-movie TV recently and nobody liked it. And tough shit because I'll talk about it here too. That that episode deals with language, right? But here, here's a simple one. Imagine explaining currency to someone who never had to deal with currency, right? It's an arbitrary thing we created to establish a semblance of balance. But what if the rules didn't apply? What if the resources were infinite? There are so many things where that slight difference a million years into some creature's evolution might be entirely different. So like, you know, movies like The Darkest Hour where they're like invisible, like I love all the shit where it gets really weird Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to have some kind of weird stuff this month. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I just think that it's, it's for me, it's something I don't really like to think about because it kind of, I don't know, kind of scares me, I guess. I I, like, I'm not, I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not going to go to the fucking moon or leave the planet. I'm fine. I'm going to stay right here. I'm good. I think it's fascinating. I think it's really cool. Like, I think if we were at the point where people could just go like, and live on space stations like that would be amazing but we're not there yet and we'll be dead before that happens i like commercially like if we just were like just living up there like families and whatever yeah i, I don't see that happening in our lifetime and that's what another reason i love that movie pandorum so much because it has such a good like ending like as you learn all of the reasons why they're on the ship to begin with and what's going to happen and like that is really cool to me like to find another place to go to thrive because we've killed our planet because we know it's going to happen I think when people think of like the other, they're afraid of it. And that's kind of stupid of me to be afraid of it. Maybe that's just me. One of the things I've always enjoyed, I'll use the analogy of robots. Artificial intelligence is escalating at at an insanely rapid rate. And at some point, AI, which is already far surpassing our intellectual abilities, will be able to sit and digest all of the media about robots. And what would it think of humanity based on our narrative structure? Same thing with aliens. Like imagine an alien sitting down and going, Really, you think I'm going to face fuck you and then make you shit a baby in front of your friends at dinner time? So it's always very interesting to me. I, I love to think of aliens. I think about it all the time. But I think that comes down to Star Trek. You know, I think that that's that's a great frontier. Mm-hmm. It's a sexy frontier, too, because I think that the bottom of the ocean is also a very bold and beautiful frontier. But nobody ever wants to talk about that shit. Not everybody was glued to their Jacques Cousteau books like I was as a kid. So I'm excited about this month. Yeah. And you're the one who introed the episode. So you're going to be in charge of us going out. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Jake, if we want to see more of Jake and our, our lovely Doug, whom we missed tonight, where can we find you guys? B-Movie TV on Roku. You can find Doug every Friday night on Friday Night Action at 8 p.m. You can find me on Saturday Night Terrors on Saturday nights, which are terrifying, at 10 p.m. Oh, and we just had a great watch party. So if you guys would like to join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash slash respond, you can join us on our next watch party. We do one every couple of months. So if you want to have a good time with us and uh, talk shit and watch a fun movie and just, you know, see us not as the podcast people, but just as like, you know, your friends, please feel free to join. We have tiers from $1 to $10. So we're really looking forward to having more of you come and be part of that. Hell yeah. You could also support us on Coffee, K-O-F-I. You want to just do a one-off and say, here's some money. Fuck off and never bother me again. <laughs> You know, that whole site started at the idea of like, hey, buy somebody who like a cup of coffee. There's also some stupid app I signed up for where it's like, buy me a cup of coffee. You could do that. Fucking Venmo me. I don't care. If you want to support the best way, liking, subscribing, 
commenting, reviewing, sharing with dumb friends, or just lying to us and creating a bunch of accounts and just doing this in perpetuity forever where you have 50 reviews that's all just one person, nothing would please me more. Yeah, for sure. Even if you call us Bugman, we're fine with that. I love it. Oh, I'd be remiss if I did not mention our new designs up on Redbubble. We have alien designs. We have two designs up. We have Mars attacks as mall rats. So it's Mars rats. And we have a special say. I'm just saying we have another special alien design, even though people wouldn't necessarily think of this as an alien, but it's an alien. There you go. <laughs> Yay. That's so exciting. So yeah, and that's on our um, slasherspod.redbubble.com. So if you want some cool, fun swag, please make sure you get on there. And I guess if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Pathologically ADE. I kind of wrote a book. So if you want to to look on my oh, Instagram yes, 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 yes. and and read the book or just buy it. It makes a, a lovely book. paperweight. It makes a good doorstop too. So please feel free to... Oh, I get it. Paperweight because it's paper yeah. and it has a weight it's to it. A little bit I'm holding my copy right here. Last Call, A Toxic Love Story. I've read a total of like seven pages. It's okay. I'm in, I'm, I, it's, not made, it's, it's not for you, Jake. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot I'm of, not your target demo. No, yes. No, no, I realized that very quick on. I was like, oh... It's a lot of cheese, May. It's you know, if you if you like that, uh, I feel like you know, I, I feel like Cam and, and Mikey, this is your thing. So I think you guys would like that. So feel free to go ahead and read, or if you think that somebody would like it, you know, make a great little stocking stuffer. I'm gonna embarrass you now. Don't I'm do embarrass it. you. Don't do Love it. stories are antiquated. Real relationships are messy, dirty, and sometimes out of control. Kind of like Burning Man. Some couples mesh well, while others become much darker and more desperate, like a couple who goes to a tanning bed thrice a week. For Jesse and Bianca, a relationship is more than just holding hands and brunch on Sundays. It's volatile and all-consuming. Will they grow up and learn to respect each other like the Rugrats, or will they continue to hurt each other until they become nothing more than just empty shells of their places? Join them in this sinful toxic mess i hate that but i'm like how do i fucking describe this <laughs> but yeah what i think it's great it's on the back cover and it's in the book which i just realized it's just great doesn't matter like don't ever try to self-publish things when you're like trying to like get it done and nothing is coming out the way you like want it to and then you're like fuck it i'll just figure it out on my own um but anyways so what you're saying is you didn't just try and get to a page count by copying and pasting kind of no, like when you're in, no, in undergrad. Because I wanted all of that inside the book on the back and I couldn't get it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't print with it all on it. So I, I'm like, I'm just going to put it back in the book. Fuck it. Like now we have more. It's fine. I mean, this is just, this is my first hurrah doing this. Mind you, I've, I've had this written since 2013 and I don't judge me too badly. Well... Stop naysaying yourself and Johnny, tell them what they've won. If you buy a copy of the book, you get all of our Patreon bonus episodes, which I feel are worth way more than just the you know tiny $10 price of the book. So if you would like to hear all of, and we have some really good ones, like the one with the cell is so yeah. good. Oh my gosh. You do reanimator as a, as a Patreon bonus, right? Yep. Well, we did the entire reanimator franchise, yeah. including the like, comic books and stuff. Yeah. That was with our good friends over at the guillotine girls. Oh my gosh. So good. So there's some really fun episodes on there that, you know, if you guys have missed out on, you know, this is a great opportunity to get them and, you know, just have fun listening to all of our, our craziness. Anyways. 
<laughs> I think we're coming to a close with this episode. I don't know how you feel. Uh-huh. Okay, good. So on behalf of Jake, we had a good time talking about Slither. Really excited about our alien content this month. So goodbye and good day. People be. What is up, your Twitter paid poop nuggets? Cyber slash 1000 here for another hidden track. Jake is really excited about this band, given that he is a vegan straight edge nerd. I am excited about this band because I have better taste in music than you. The band is life force, but it is two words, unlike Toby Hooper's cinematic masterpiece. The song is called Out Front and features a vocal spot by Tim McMahon, of no relationship to the WWE arm swisher. Please support Life Force at the links in the description and enjoy Out Front. 